This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Alcohol Part 2, The Power of Recovery. Tommy Trevino, who is a substance use counselor, came into the room. He sat down and he met me eye to eye as a human that was not a burden to society, but a human that had a disease that could be treatable. That was that aha moment. I mean, I'll never forget it. So, you know, it's coming to you in the ER. Oh my God, how did I get here again? But then all of a sudden, somebody coming in and say, I understand. You're not alone. You're not a bad person. You have a disease. Let's figure out a way to treat it. And even the staff, you had social workers there. You had people invested in, you know, in the ER, even the psychiatrist. I mean, you know, a couple of them are like, this is not good what you're doing. When I almost blew up the house when I left the pilot light on. <laughs> but that's the reality. It got really scary. But still, they cared. And they were invested. So every time I come in, it's like, okay, like, is it this time? Like, what are we going to do? I mean, Tommy even set me up in a detox. You know, he personally called. And that was that last rehab that worked. I mean, you talk about being invested, and sometimes people just need a little extra help. And here's the thing. As somebody who is now in a recovery, the pivotal point when somebody comes in to the hospital, there's that small window where they like, I do need help. When you could actually be there for that and give options for help, think about how many more people will recover instead of having an IV put in their arm, give them a sheet of paper and kick them out. They're going to go drink again. I guarantee it. But somebody like Tommy, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in recovery now. And so I've sent a lot of people there. You know, a lot of those people are now sober. And they got to talk to people like Tommy. And they got to be heard. I mean, it really is a pretty remarkable thing. Welcome back to E-Impulse. This is part two in our two-part series on alcohol use disorder and withdrawal from addiction medicine specialists, Dr. Amy Mullen and Dr. Liz Johnson. We'll also hear more from Phoebe, whose voice you heard at the start of this episode, as she shares some of her own experiences with alcohol use disorder and recovery. In part one, we discussed the importance of aggressive early stabilization of severe alcohol withdrawal with benzodiazepines and phenobarbital, and even Presidex and ketamine in refractory cases. Once these patients are stabilized, we have to start treating the underlying disease, just like we would treat diabetes in a patient presenting with DKA. Today's episode will focus more on outpatient management of mild alcohol withdrawal and management of alcohol use disorder. So let's jump back in. Last episode, we talked a lot about management of the acute alcohol withdrawal patient in the ED, and especially those patients that we anticipate were getting admitted. So let's now switch gears to a patient that we think can actually be discharged. How would you manage this patient differently if you feel like this is a patient who might actually go home? So if I thought this is a patient who was going to go home, I would not be using phenobarbital as much. That's one type of drug that we tend to reserve for patients that we think are going to be going to the ICU. 
If I'm sending somebody home who has alcohol withdrawal, I'm either sending them home on a benzodiazepine taper or a gabapentin fixed dose schedule for 10 days. So I would tend to stick with the benzos in the acute ER setting. When I think about the person with alcohol withdrawal that I am sending home, my goals are different, right? I'm not worried about DTs because I'm admitting that person. I'm not worried about seizures because I'm admitting that person. So my goal for this patient is different because if I think this person is at risk for severe alcohol withdrawal and I need to treat it, I'm admitting them. So my goal for this person is to make them comfortable at home so that they are comfortable and to start that treatment process. So my goal is to treat here the alcohol use disorder, treat them symptomatically so that they are comfortable and in a space where they can begin their recovery journey. I'm not providing seizure protection because if I think they're going to have an alcohol withdrawal seizure, they should be admitted. And when you kind of come at it from that space, I don't really see the point of phenobarb. I got a lot of people who say, oh, I just phenobarb load them and send them out. And I think to myself, well, why are you phenobarb loading them? Because they're trying to prevent a seizure. But if I thought that person was going to seize, I should admit them, right? Like I don't send people who are at risk for seizure within the next 24, 48 hours home. Remember, that's on day three that they're going to have their seizure. And how long does my phenobarb load last? Well, two, three days. So I kind of just now I have that person who's at day three on their seizure day, and maybe they have a little bit of phenobarb rebound withdrawal. So what did I do for them? Really not much. I see this done a lot. And really what we are doing is making ourselves feel better, but we're not really doing anything for the patient. I think there's a lot of fear of if you send somebody home with a Valium taper that they're going to take all of it or they're going to take it and drink. And I think that's a, I mean, a reasonable fear. But I mean, one, we send people home with DOAX and things like that, which if the patient took all of that at one time would also not be ideal. If you're sending somebody with alcohol withdrawal or alcohol use disorder home, uh, you have to be able to have a good rapport with them initially and a good plan and a good safety plan and you know, return precautions and all those different type of things. So if you're able to have that rapport with that patient and they really want to stop drinking and they have somebody that's going to be able to watch them and all these other type of things. And I think that you can have that conversation with them like, hey, if you take all of this Valium that I'm giving you in one sitting, or if you take it and drink, that's really going to hurt you and put you at risk for respiratory depression, you know, and a whole slew of badness. So if you're able to have that conversation with the patient, you should feel good sending them home with that. And then the other option, if the patient is a candidate, is doing gabapentin, which has much less risk for respiratory depression, though, I mean, if you drink and take all of your gabapentin at once, I think that you could challenge that, but definitely has less risk than the benzodiazepines. So it's another great option if you're still feeling a little bit uneasy about sending somebody home with 20 tabs of Valium. So I don't send people home with benzos. I send them home with gabapentin. And here's why. If you actually look at the studies, there's randomized control studies looking at decent doses of benzodiazepines versus gabapentin, high-dose gabapentin. Gabapentin shows less alcohol consumption later, and gabapentin also shows better control of symptoms. And go back to what we talked about. What am I treating when I send that person home? I want them to feel comfortable, and I want them to get into a place where they can stop drinking. Now, if I send someone home with benzos for four or five days, 
we all know what happens when you take benzos, right? You get benzo rebound. And so even a short taper, benzos are associated with insomnia, mood disorders. Those are exactly the things that happen that people suffer with from alcohol withdrawal that drive people to continue drinking versus gabapentin actually starts to treat some of that insomnia and anxiety. So I actually send people home with high dose gabapentin routinely if I'm sending someone home, because what I'm trying to do is treat long-term the insomnia and anxiety so that person feels comfortable and can get into treatment. Let's just take those two really quickly. So Liz, if you could tell me an example of a benzo taper in the right patient who you think has a safe plan, what would you be prescribing? There's a variety of different ways to do it. Some people do Librium. I tend to do Valium. When the person is being discharged, I do a fixed dose taper as opposed to a symptom triggered taper. I think it's a little bit less confusing for the patient, more clear. So 10 milligrams of PO Valium four times a day for the first day, three times a day for the second day, BID for the next two days, and then QHS for the next two days after that. Just as an example, you can adjust it from there, but that would just be kind of a standard one that would work for most folks that you're discharging. Like Amy said, I really have gone more towards the gabapentin and naltrexone kind of package for people that I'm discharging, but for certain patients, I will do Valium for home, and that would be kind of what that would look like. And Amy, what does your gabapentin taper look like? So gabapentin, it's high-dose gabapentin. So it's gabapentin, 6 to 900 milligrams TID for two weeks. No taper. No taper, although some people, when they'll get into treatment, will then be on gabapentin as part of their alcohol use disorder treatment, and they'll be continued on gabapentin and naltrexone. I took naltrexone for a while, I think at the beginning of my sobriety. Um, I didn't take Anabuse this time. I had tried it before, but I, I drank on it. And boy, let me tell you, you get sick. <laughs> I don't know, but that was my, that's how bad I was. So I was just like, oh gosh. But no, I took naltrexone um, for a while. And I, you know, I took an antidepressant too. You know, I was just depleted, but... You know, I think the nail tricks on it worked as an anti-craving, um, but also at that point, you know, they say you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I really, I feel like I hit that kind of aha moment. Like I know what I need to do, and you know, I didn't take it for that long. So this sounds like a fairly time-consuming, complicated process. Do you have a structure in place to kind of help these patients transition to the outpatient world and identify who needs more outpatient resources? So I don't want to think that it's complicated. It's not really complicated. The person just needs to be referred to outpatient care. So at UC Davis, we do have this wonderful, amazing program. We have substance use navigators. You've probably heard from Tommy Trevino in the past on this podcast, and he is really an amazing human being. And really, he is very gifted in kind of that motivational piece of connecting with people and motivational interviewing and, and helping them to kind of engage in recovery. But if you don't have a Tommy Trevino in your emergency department, this is really just, hey, let's talk about 
treatment and recovery. We have medications that can help reduce craving. We can treat your symptoms so that you feel better and then refer you to outpatient treatment. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in this specialty addiction care. Gabapentin, naltrexone, acamprosate, some of the medications that are used for craving are not super complicated medications and could be prescribed by primary care. So some of the medication piece doesn't have to be really that complicated. Someone can be referred back to primary care. Let's talk about some of those medication options one at a time. So let's start with naltrexone. How do you dose that? I dose naltrexone 50 milligrams once daily. That's kind of the standard dose. There is also long-acting naltrexone, which is Vivitrol, which is a one-month injection. You can actually give IM naltrexone from the emergency department. It is covered in some settings. Here in California, it is covered by our state Medi-Cal program, and we have it on formulary. Really cool option. Love it. But you have to know, remember naltrexone is an opioid antagonist. So if someone is co-using opioids or has chronic pain and uses opioids, this is like not the right medication for them. If I'm ever giving the IM naltrexone in the emergency department, I do a Narcan challenge where even if the person says, no, I don't co-use opioids at all, I give them intranasal Narcan just to make sure we don't go into withdrawal because that would be really terrible if someone was chronic opioid use disorder and then I sent them into withdrawal with my IM naltrexone. And the other group is, you know, people who have liver disease. So if your LFTs are over five times normal or you have cirrhosis, naltrexone is not a great medication for you. But generally, I think we don't use enough of it. What about acamprosate? We tend to think of naltrexone as kind of our preferred agent. If somebody can take it, that would be what we'd do. And that's just because of how acamprosate is dosed. So acamprosate has like the the funniest dosage of all the meds in the hospital. So it's 666 milligrams three times a day, which every time I have a learner on, they can't believe it. So that's, but that is what it is. So as we know, having anybody take a medication three times a day is difficult. Um, And this would be potentially a long-term medication that you would have to take three times a day. But if the patient really wants to stop drinking and they also use opioids or they also have cirrhosis, this would be the medication of choice for them. It is cleared by the kidneys. So you do have to dose adjust if they have chronic kidney disease. And if their chronic kidney disease is severe at one point, they're not a candidate for anymore, but you do cut the dose in half after a certain creatinine clearance. How many pills are you writing for? How long are you writing this medication for? And what are the next steps? I tend to write for two weeks to a month. I'm usually talking to one of the substance use navigators and they're letting me know like, oh, we're not going to get this person in for three weeks and I give them a month. If they're like, oh, they're going to be seen at some type of follow-up in the next week, then I'm doing two weeks for them. Yeah, I'm the same. I would like the patient to have continuous access to medications to help control cravings. And so I'm trying to think about like, this is like my renal transplant patient. I don't want them to run out of medication. So that's my primary goal. I don't want you to have a day without meds because that's maybe a day that you end up relapsing. And I don't want this to feel hard. I would like for this to feel for the patient as something that was easily achievable. So I don't want access to medications to be the thing that sends them back into alcohol use disorder or relapse. 
So whatever it takes to make it easy for that patient and to make them feel like that having access to medications is not going to be the barrier for them, that's what I do, which is usually, like Liz says, two weeks to a month. But I, in no way do I think, I got to like tightly control how much naltrexone you have access to. Like, let's be serious. That's just silly. Okay, I'm going to ask a stupid question. So is this gabapentin and our benzos taper and then these, or do you start these at the same time, or do you start these instead of those options? So for the person that we talked about at the beginning who we're sending home with mild alcohol withdrawal that doesn't meet criteria for admission, I send them home with gabapentin and naltrexone. I start naltrexone on day one, and if someone is interested, I even give them the IM injection in the emergency department prior to discharge. I'm the same. And just as like a, how effective are naltrexone or acampasate, the the number needed to treat for both of them is 12 to prevent relapse to heavy drinking. And just as like a frame of reference, the number needed to treat for like CT confirmed sinusitis giving antibiotics is 12. So compared to all of the antibiotics that we throw for things that we're not 100% sure of, the all the urines and various different things in the emergency department, it's just as efficacious, if not more. So it definitely has an important role in these patients. Do we have any data yet in terms of how well this works long-term, getting people into recovery? So it's not perfect, right? Remember that addiction is a chronic disease, and so relapse is expected. So most of our patients are going to experience relapse at one time or another because relapse is part of their chronic disease process. But it's just a matter of we're trying to decrease the intensity and frequency of relapse episodes. And for that, the medications and behavioral supports that people will often find in outpatient treatment do work. How I kind of counsel patients about specifically for naltrexone is there's a lot of different outcomes that we look at when we're looking at patients with alcohol use disorder. It's not just complete sobriety. We kind of look at more harm reduction-based outcomes. So naltrexone has been proven to decrease the number of drinks that you have on a heavy drinking day. So if you're still drinking and you're taking your naltrexone, you're going to drink less on a heavy drinking day, and you're also going to drink less drinks in a month in general. So though, you know, those outcomes are not just you've stopped drinking altogether, that is definitely still a benefit for the patient's health long-term. What other resources are available or do you recommend for your patients behavioral resources? We are lucky again because we have our substance use navigator team who really do a great job of coordinating outpatient resources for people in the community. There are behavioral health treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, which do help for addiction. You know, it's one of those, whatever works for the patient. So for some people, therapy is a really important piece of their recovery. For some people, it just feels like a barrier and they don't have time for it. And they would prefer just to take medications. And I think our goals are aligned there. Whatever helps the patient drink less, live their life, not be admitted to the ICU, that's what we want to do. So it's it's one of those nice places where our goals are totally aligned and we want to do whatever works for them. What about programs like AA? I would be interested to hear what Amy's thoughts are on AA. I have nothing against AA. I think that it's certainly not the only option. And sometimes, 
It can be a little bit dogmatic, and they're against people using things like naltrexone and some of the other meds. They're much more purist when it comes to their approach. People often ask me, you know, how successful is AA, right? What are the numbers? And that's actually a pretty hard answer to give you definitively. There is this book that came out, like I think it was like 2010 or 2015 around then, called The Sober Truth. And it said that it was between 5 and 10% success rate for AA, even though the AA, the big book, which is the book that everyone gets when they, the kind of the Bible of AA touts 50%. But that's because they say if you work the program correctly, right? So it's just like a, I, I don't know if you guys relate to like the fad diet trend, but they're always like, oh, well, did you do the diet? Did you really dedicate yourself to Weight Watchers? You know, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. It's always if it's not working, it's you. It's not the program, which is a great spot to be in if you're a program, right? But there's been newer studies that show kind of anywhere between 10 and 25%. And I think that AA really has a lot of amazing benefits. And it's honestly, if you think about it, one of like the coolest public health grassroots things that are out there. There's places in every city at every day at all different times, and it's 100% completely free. So I think that if AA works for you, that's amazing, but you shouldn't feel bad and like you're a failure if AA did not work for you. We have a word for that, right? Selection bias. So this is why we don't really know how effective AA is because we only have data on the people who made it through a really difficult, complicated, rigorous program. And so we don't know how those people who were motivated and dedicated enough to make it through that rigorous program would do without it, because there is a natural recovery rate, which is kind of about the same as the AA recovery rate. And actually, in some studies, the natural recovery rates are higher than some rates posted by AA. So we don't know the answer to that. It does seem to work for some people. Some people find that structure reassuring and it works for them. And that is great. My criticism of AA is they often hold themselves out as the end all be all of the only process to recovery. And people who don't adhere to some of those rigid rules are blamed. And that cycle of self-stigma and blaming worsens recovery rates from addiction. And so in some ways... Trying AA and failing and experiencing that self-stigma could worsen your outcomes. And that is something that is we don't know the answer to because you know we don't know what happens to the people who try AA and fail. One of the kind of issues I have with AA is it reinforces this moral failure of addiction, right? And that's the part of it that I don't like. I highly suggest anybody who gets sober, give AA or NA a try. Just because you're going to be in a community of people who have that same ism, you know. So that is helpful. Therapy was instrumental. I was lucky enough. I mean, she saw me pro bono for a long time because she believed in me and helping. I saw her once a week, probably for those first two years. And now I do, I call it maintenance. So I go once every three weeks and we check in, even if it's good. But I was able to work through all that things. I always say that alcoholism, drug addiction, or food addiction, any of those addictions or isms is a symptom of something 
greater. So we need to do that deep work and it's like an onion, more will be revealed. So you keep going through those layers and that is a huge part of recovery. And even AA does that, you've got the 12 steps and that is meant to kind of go through all the stuff that caused you to drink so heavily. And you know, staying in contact with UC Davis. Tommy and I are on a regular basis talking. I'm now part of the Substance Abuse Committee at UC Davis. If you would have told Phoebe sitting in the ER four years ago that I would one day be on a podcast with you or, you know, part of the Substance Abuse Committee, I wouldn't have believed you. But that is the power of recovery. So staying in recovery. You know, I never want to forget how bad it was. And I want to continue doing this work for the rest of my life because if I can recover, so can other people. So I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to keep doing the work. You know, service work is a big part of my life. And also finding things that bring you joy. So whatever that is, is it cooking? For me, I love fashion. I mean, sustainable fashion, vintage, all of that is my favorite. And you know what happened this year? They put me on a cover of a magazine for sustainable fashion. They put drunk old Phoebe on a cover of a magazine. And I also do exercise because my serotonin is depleted. My brain chemistry, my body is built differently than other people. So I don't take medication anymore, but if I didn't work out, I would. So I work out probably four or five days a week and I call that my natural antidepressant. And that really helps keep me like joyful and happy. So it's a combination of a lot of different things. So we're really lucky at UC Davis and we have the substance use navigators and we even have a substance use intervention team with our addiction specialists and toxicologists. Do you need to have expertise in addiction medicine to start these meds out of the ED or can anyone do it? No, you can easily start, particularly, you know, naltrexone, gabapentin, acamprosate. These medications are relatively safe. They're oral. They're pretty easy to start. For us, our inpatient addiction train, I think, really helps with some of the complex cases of people who have co-occurring pain disorders, who are going to require surgery, who are in the ICU, so more complicated medical management. But just the basics of some of these medications, really super easy. And remember where we started. We started talking about like ketamine drips and phenobar bloats. And now we end saying like, I don't know about ER doctors writing naltrexone. Come on, guys. (laughs) If you're writing for ketamine and understanding that complex pharmacology, you can write for naltrexone. This is really <laughs> easy to do. I like the one-time shot. That's brilliant. It, you know, we have it in our ER, Julia, so you should use it. Anything else you guys think we should know about outpatient treatment? I think it's really just framing this from someone who has an alcohol use disorder who is doomed to come back and come back and come back and be admitted is to start to think about like, how can I change this person's trajectory and repeat visits with alcohol withdrawal are not inevitable and continuing to do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Remember that's the definition of insanity. And so we got to start doing something different. Whether we like it or not as ER providers, alcohol use disorder is our thing. You know, it's pretty hard to work a shift where somebody is not, one of your patients has not been either affected by 
a drunk driver or they themselves have an alcohol problem or something related to alcohol. I feel like in the ER, we're constantly interfacing with alcohol use disorder in some different type of way every shift. And a lot of these patients don't make it to their primary care doctor, don't have one or don't have an addiction specialist. So just like all things in emergency medicine, we're constantly adapting to help these patients that are vulnerable and need us. And I think that we're going to be the new alcohol use disorder specialist because we're really the ones that are seeing these vulnerable patients. Pulse check. Patients at risk for severe withdrawal, including DTs and seizures, should be admitted, not discharged. For patients with mild withdrawal, consider high-dose gabapentin or a benzodiazepine taper. Discuss the risks of these meds with your patients as you would any other new medication. Start treating the chronic disease of alcohol use disorder with naltrexone or acamprosate. Consider long-acting IM naltrexone in patients who do not take opioids, but do a naloxone challenge in the ED prior to giving the injection. The ED is the first line of care for many patients with alcohol use disorder. We can and should be starting treatment from the emergency department. If possible, work with an ED substance use navigator or community liaison to help these patients get plugged in to continued outpatient care. Most importantly, see your patients as human. Remember that they have a disease that is treatable. We can be the first step towards recovery. I really loved this series because I feel like this is something I see every day, and now we really do have better tools to treat it. So a huge thank you to Drs. Mulan and Johnson for sharing their expertise. Yeah, and it makes it all worth it when you hear from people like Phoebe. Please help us get the word out by sharing this podcast and leaving us a review on iTunes. Thanks to our department for supporting our ever-expanding addiction medicine team. And thanks to OM Productions for managing this recording remotely while I had COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Keep listening for some final thoughts from Phoebe. See y'all next time. And I think there's been a stigma for a very long time against addiction and alcoholism. Like, we don't see them as human, right? But they are. And to think that this could affect anybody, it could affect a president, one of our former presidents, is a recovery because he was an alcoholic. You know, like, think about Betty Ford. Like, or it could be, it just, it's anybody. It could affect anybody. So see a person as human when you go treat that next patient. You know, don't just try to get them in and get them out. You know, they have a disease, and just remember that that disease is treatable. And now we have some things. There's medications, but yeah. So see them as a human. And also to people out there who are struggling right now. You know, I very often talk about recovery because people go, no, you didn't have a problem. I was like, do you have a half hour? Let me tell you about how much of a problem I had. But recovery is possible. It is a hard work, absolutely. But it is so worth it. And I just, my my greatest wish is that we had more people like Tommy in the world or more of this, that we get to talk about it, right? Because I think the more that we talk about it, the more that we break that stigma associated with it, the more we normalize it. I mean, I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm going to guess it's pretty high of how many people every day come into the ER from alcohol or drug issues. We have a problem. It was the highest percentage of overdoses ever on record last year. 
That's insane. This is a problem, but recovery is possible. And my greatest wish too is that recovery was made easier for people so that when somebody says, hey, I want to go into treatment, we've got treatment for you. I need to go into detox. All right, your insurance, don't worry, it's going to cover it. Like we need to make that better because that when that window's open and somebody wants to take it, if we had the resources to be like, yeah, we're going to do it, wouldn't that be amazing? This is why I'm going to talk about this for the rest of my life because I want to be that 80-year-old lady still talking about recovery be like, look at, God, we have this great system now where we can get people the help they need. Thank you.